Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to remind you about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now, on with the show. There is no greater privilege than being a literature professor or a music professor and engaging in the essence of education, which is passing on an inheritance from one generation to the next. And they are not doing that. They are more interested in making sure that they are not subject to a invisible pack of fleas complaining about them on Twitter. They are burning their inheritance. And it is utterly disgusting. The cowardice. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Heather MacDonald. Heather is an American commentator, essayist and author. She works at the Manhattan Institute and is a contributing editor to City Journal. Her commentary has been widely published and she is the author of numerous books, including The Burden of Bad Ideas, How Modern Intellectuals Misshape Our Society, Are Cops Racist? and The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. So Heather, we are coming out of 18 months off the craziest period of my lifetime, at least, with unprecedented authoritarianism in much of the Western world, lockdowns none of us ever expected could happen. And yet we also have good news. We have the vaccine, which has broken the link between infection and death and between infection and hospitalization. That's very clear. We should be getting back to some kind of normality, and yet it feels like we aren't. It feels like the impulse for regulation is still there. It feels like the fear-mongering is still there, and a lot of the COVID hysteria is still there. Is that how it also feels in the US? And what do you think explains this problem? I've gone through about 500 days of daily astonishment. I, (laughs) I have never adjusted to seeing people alone on bicycles with masks or out jogging with one person per square mile wearing a mask. I, 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 I remain constantly astounded by this. And I'm now equally astounded by this new phase that we're entering, Brendan, that you rightly characterize, that the safetyist hysterics are not fed up. 
Mm. I would have assumed that by now they would say, to hell with this. I yearn to get back to normal. Let's just take our chances. And yet there seems to be no diminution on their parts in the willingness to be regulated, to regulate others, to destroy economic activity and normal life. Uh, and so the, the tolerance for this new bizarre regime uh, seems endless. And, and my fear is that the anti-science, anti-empirical understanding that has governed us will continue. I just, I just flew back yesterday into the Los Angeles International Airport from Idaho. And when you walk onto any flight now, you get these helpful stewardesses who are handing out from their baskets little sanitary wipes for people to wipe down every upholstered surface, every plastic surface in their area, even though we know that fomite transmission, that is the transmission of, of, of COVID uh, germs on surfaces, was one of these false flag hysterias. <laughs> and yet we're still doing it. We're still doing it. So you can disprove anything. And the, the gesture of safetyism continues unabated. The only normality we seem to be heading towards is what is referred to as the new normal. And the new normal, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK and in much of Western Europe, it sounds like a pretty terrifying prospect. So it is going to be constantly wiping things down, always washing your hands, no kissing, no hugging. People are now wearing signs around their necks in some workplaces to indicate whether they are comfortable with a handshake, a hug, or just keeping your distance. A very strange way for human beings to behave. Of course, uh, you know, social distancing might no longer be the, the law in the UK, but it has been institutionalized at a cultural level. It's still seen as the correct thing to do if you're a socially responsible person. You will socially distance from other people. So we're seeing the implementation in, in a very underhand way sometimes of what is referred to as the new normal, which seems to be the possibility of socially distancing ourselves from one another, in other words, undermining society itself for the foreseeable future. How, how worried about, are you about the new normal and the possibility that this supposedly abnormal period will stretch on for a very long time? Well, I, I do think it will. And it's been pointed out before that all of the post 9-11 security measures uh, never waned. Uh, and so we seem to ratchet up restrictions on human life and ratchet up fear without taking it back down. Uh, you know, uh, there was an article about the French kiss the bees also being possibly uh, put into abeyance in, in France. I, I guess I'm, if people are going to give up on, you know, handshakes, that's something I can live with possibly. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the 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 type of restrictions that really do cut into the possibility of economic activity mm. and into child development the fact that we are going into the same hysterics over the far more innocuous delta variant mm. and are ignoring the minuscule death count that the thinking that that is held hostage to the rising case count is not is not abating so 
yeah, I, I don't know when we're going to get out of this. It doesn't seem like anybody really wants to besides those who were skeptics from the start. So I want to talk to you about the Delta variant because the Delta variant has lent itself very well to the argument that things cannot get back to normal and to the argument that we are still in a very scary position and we can't relax just yet. And one of the things that worries me, I know this is something you've touched on too in the in the United States context, but one of the things that's worried me in the UK is that a lot of the experts who are pro-lockdown, they end up sounding anti-vaccine because what they're essentially saying, and lots of the experts said this in the UK when we had Freedom Day, when we reopened society a few weeks ago, a lot of them were saying, listen, it's going to be a complete and utter disaster. The Delta variant is out there. It's going to spread. We're going to see a spike in cases, a spike in hospitalizations. And they were openly saying that the vaccination is not enough to save us. It's not enough to get us through this. So we have to stay locked down for longer and longer. And one of the things that worries me is that such is the thirst for regulation and restriction that they, uh, some of these people who are ostensibly pro-science and ostensibly pro-human uh, intervention into problems like viruses, they end up sounding like anti-vaxxers. They end up playing down the great leaps forward we have made in turning COVID from a scary virus into something not dissimilar to flu. Well, it's hilarious. We've had a number of these instances where the safetyists are caught like a donkey between two bales of hay, between two tempting targets of fear that are mutually exclusive and, and they they can't really decide. And so they do both that are positions that cannot be reconciled. So you're absolutely right. If you believe that this Delta variant whose symptoms are no worse on the average case than the common cold, or you know, a runny nose and a sore throat and a headache, that this is some novel and, and you know, continued lethal threat to the survival of the species, of course you should be pro-vaccination. And yet what we have here is the hyping of the so-called breakthrough infection issue, which is people who have been vaccinated who end up contracting an even milder version of the Delta variant. Uh, And and so if if you want to get people vaccinated to bring it down, you should be underplaying and or, or or being realistic about the innocuousness of the breakthrough problem, but they're doing both simultaneously, uh, and so they're they're having it both ways. They had it both ways as well uh, with the what I've called the reductio ad, ad absurdum with the uh, issue of the blood clots mm-hmm. and the authorities halting the vaccination campaigns of AstraZeneca in Europe and then here in the United States of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for a blood clot death rate that was minuscule mm. in the UK the death risk for blood clots was 0.0000.14% of dying with a blood clot after having been vaccinated i mean that is negligible mm. and and yet they pointed that played that up well that can only justify halting a vaccine campaign if that's a higher death risk than from COVID. And and so you can't have it both ways. We're telling people that this is a, a the COVID death risk is enormous, 
but it's lower than that of dying from a blood clot. So again, a completely irrational policy that fails to balance risks, put them in proper context. And, and we've got that as well with the efforts to both create fear about vaccination and to, uh, and to, and to foster fear about the Delta variant. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that struck me about the the discussion in the US about breakthrough cases of Delta, which are breaking through some people who have been double vaccinated. And of course, we've got the same situation in Europe. Some people who have been double vaxxed are still contracting the Delta variant. And in the vast majority of cases, there's a very mild infection and it passes quite quickly. And that's been flagged up a lot by uh, uh, some of the people who would prefer that we stay in lockdown or who prefer, who just like whipping up fear, I think. And one of the issues there, just to dig down in, into a bit more depth, it, it, I think one of the striking things about this argument, it seems to be underpinned by a view that it's the government's responsibility to protect us from all forms of illness. It's the government's job. If we lived under serious governments that actually cared about us, they would stop us from ever getting ill from anything. And I think people underestimate just what a radical transformation that is in terms of understanding the relationship between the state and the individual. And is that one of the consequences of the past 18 months, do you think, that we now have a situation where lots of people who were previously possibly quite sensible now seem to believe that the government must protect us from all forms of risk? That is not a unusual view among some of our, you know, liberal progressives who do believe, I mean, we see this now with the, with the Biden massive trillion dollar stimulus COVID relief bill. I mean, infrastructure bill, God knows what it's going under, but the, the idea that the only problem facing Americans is lack of adequate government money thrown at them and that you can solve all problems by just throwing government money at people when our social problems today are really much more, uh, it's not a lack of financial capital, it's a lack of social capital uh, bourgeois values, personal responsibility, the ability to defer gratification and, and uh, you know, exercise self-discipline. So that view that the government is responsible for everything or, you know, the, the preposterous idea of schools doing school breakfasts as if any mother cannot afford to feed her child breakfast, which costs, if you're sound as a housekeeper, pennies a day. So that that is a, a huge uh, hunger mm. to substitute responsibility to transfer it to the to the uh, government. But I would say yes, that's that's an issue of the government is responsible to protect us from all illness or all all bad things. But the the real problem is even if you accept that as a policy, why focus exclusively? on one risk. Right now, the deaths from COVID are a sixth that of deaths daily from cancer and heart disease in the United States. So it, it just it's this bizarre, monomaniacal focus on COVID. And all of this, I mean, Brendan, you and I have been saying this since March 2020. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the phony memes were were available then and they've never ended, but we can say it again, uh, that the consequences of focusing on, on this one disease, ignoring others, 
you know, the shutdowns of exercise. We know that obesity is probably one of the main contributors of, of actually having COVID be very serious threat to one's health. And yet we saw gyms being thrown down. We saw people saying you can't go out by yourself and, and jog if you're more than 50 meters from your house. Uh, so, or miles, oh, I can talk to somebody who's not in a metric system. So <laughs> 50, <laughs> 50 yards from one's house. Um, all of this is just completely irrational policy making. Mm -hmm. The mind cannot really take it in without being crushed in despair at the total failure of rationality, which is our our one hope for for progress in in society. I think that the failure of rationality is a very good way to describe what's been happening over the past eighteen months. And um, I say that as someone who, of course, recognizes that COVID nineteen posed uh, certainly when it first broke through, it posed a significant challenge to society, but it is one that we ought to have dealt with in a more balanced way by weighing up risks and thinking about the consequences of the actions we were taking and not just about the consequences of the disease itself. Now, of course, that's something you've written about extensively over the past 18 months, the question of how does a society balance risks and, and what kind of trade-offs must society sometimes make in terms of, of course, wanting to keep people safe, but also recognizing that a certain amount of risk is desirable if we're going to have a free society, if we're going to have an economically healthy society. And you've written that a, a mature civilization understands that risk is part of life and that there are higher purposes, even mere sociability, than avoiding death at all costs. And I want to ask you in relation to the entire pandemic, but also in relation to the current obsession over breakthrough cases and mild illness, what is it about contemporary society that seems to put um, it seems to elevate the off-putting of death above everything else so that simply being safe, simply not dying and simply feeling that, that sense that you won't die from this disease anytime soon, that has become almost the highest sense of purpose in Western societies. Well, absolutely. And I am usually loath to, to take up anything that has a whiff of conspiracy theory or ulterior motive, I, I tend to think that the best explanations are the, are the most simplest and people should be taken at their word of doing what they say they think they're doing. So they are saying that they're trying to keep us safe. I think that that is largely what they really are doing uh, with this premium on safetyism. But I would say that just the the daily observation of what that norm provides people is the possibility of exercising power. And, and again, this is not a new observation. Generally, I don't like making that move, but it is so obvious to me that we have, in, this, in, this, in the name of safetyism, we have delegated not just the government, but each other to enjoy the the uh thrill of telling other people what to do mm. and subjecting them to a, a daily harassment uh so yesterday in the in the sun valley airport in idaho uh i did not have it at some point immediately my mask fully up and so a very young couple in the security line ahead of me 
the guy turned around and barked at me to put my mask all the way up. And, and so that instinct to be able to regulate other people's lives, have the power to say no or yes, I think is also somewhat of a narcotic. But, but leaving that aside, I do think that the fanatical uh, fear of risk, and again, we, it, we need to insist that in focusing on COVID risk, they are creating much larger risk in other areas. Yeah. And, and the greatest one is the expansion of the academic skills gap here in the United States between black and Hispanic students on the one hand and white and Asian students on the other. The, the academic skills of black and Hispanics have plummeted during this time of school shutdowns. And, and that skills gap is a extraordinarily uh, lethal weapon that is being used now in the United States against every standard of Western civilization. So that is going to be a source of further uh, social and racial unrest, and and the you know the risks to to businesses continue. Uh, but I would say, and this was something that you uh, intuited very early on, Brendan, that this fanatical aversion to one kind of of power enabling risk is a result of the feminization of society and the therapeutic nature of society today. I, for me, one of the most iconic moments of the pandemic hysteria in the United States was when President Donald Trump had contracted the disease and then was uh, let out of the military Walter Reed Hospital outside of Washington, D.C., came back to the White House, went out to a balcony on the White House to give a talk, brief talk, remarks, and he sort of took off his mask. It was portrayed as ripping off his mask. It was simply doing the usual unhook from one ear, you know, and unhook from the other uh, to talk. And and his the, the essence of his brief remarks was basically, we can't allow ourselves to be felled by fear. We have to go forward. Uh, you know, we're a great nation. Do not be afraid. Well, the next day, the New York Times, our so-called paper of record, had a banner headline uh, to the effect that Trump tells the nation not to be afraid. They were doing this not as a celebratory gesture, but as a highly critical and dismissive one. And, and that's where we've ended up. You know, the great Democratic icon, FDR, mm -hmm. Roosevelt during World War II, famously said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself now a a president who tells the country do not be afraid is going to be lambasted by the elites who assume that the proper role of a president is to keep everybody terrorized and tell them do not uh even think of taking on a certain amount of risk in order to go forward with human life i mean this is it is a remarkable thing. We are destroying the male virtues of forbearance, uh, you know, forward motion, a tolerance for risk in order to, to engage in greater enterprise in, in favor of a feminized version of maximal protection 
and, and staying at home and huddling in fear. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. That's a, a very good description of how our, our view of fear has changed where, uh, you know, 70 years ago, it, 80 years ago, it was a good thing to stand up to fear, to face it down and to take risks and be brave. And now it's something that it's celebrated to be fearful and it's demonized to challenge fear. I think that's a really good way of describing the the broader predicament that we find ourselves in, even beyond the specific COVID crisis. You touched there, before we move on to a, a, a few other questions, you touched there upon the some of the class inequalities and in the US context, some racial inequalities that will spring from the lockdown period. And this is something that I, I find it quite staggering often that the left was often at the forefront of demanding stricter lockdowns and insisting that they should last longer than than they did, um, willfully ignoring uh, the fact that it was having a detrimental impact on certain sections of society more than others. And so the situation in the UK, for example, was one where the upper middle classes could luxuriate at home. Often they could work from home, or some of them, of course, were furloughed. They were paid to be at home. They had pretty nice houses. Maybe they had a garden. They could walk around. They could sit in the sunshine. But of course, for many other people, they either lost their jobs or they carried on working. They went out to empty people's dustbins, to deliver people's food, to stock supermarket shelves. They didn't get any extra pay and they didn't have any of the perks of life in capitalist society, such as going to the pub at the end of the week or going on holiday every few months. All of those perks were denied to them. So they were slogging it out, but with very few of the normal rewards. What do you think made the left so blind to these obvious inequalities? Did they just get swept up in the COVID hysteria or do they not care about inequality as much as they claim to? It's just, it's just totally amazing, Brendan. You're absolutely right. And here again, one has two potential explanations. Well, I guess three. One is that they're actually sincere and, and they just feel like with this monomaniacal focus on this one risk, we are helping everybody. Mm. So that's, that's taking them at their words. But there's two other possibilities, and you and you allude to one other, which is that they don't care as much about inequality as they purport to, uh, and and that has some support in the parallel response to uh, crime, the crime increase that's going on in the United States right now, and has always gone on uh, with the left's decision to demonize the police, which results in the police backing off from constitutional, necessary, lawful, proactive policing in high crime areas. Proactive means it's discretionary. Officers are taking an initiative to try and investigate suspicious behavior before it ripens into an actual drive-by shooting. They're doing less of that. And the 
homicide increase that we've seen in this country is the largest in, in our history. It is overwhelmingly, almost exclusively felling blacks. Over four dozen black children, toddlers, were killed in drive-by shootings last year. The rate goes up this year. These are babies that are being gunned down in their backyards, in their bedrooms, at barbecues, at birthday parties. And the left doesn't say a peep about them, not one word. There has not been any Black Lives Matter protests because it seems that the only time that the left and the media cares about black lives is when the rare instances when somebody is killed by a cop. Uh, but otherwise, you know, if there were, if there had been 50 white children gunned down in drive-by shootings last year, yeah. there would be a national revolution. Yeah. Uh, if, a, if a white kid is ever killed, that becomes news. And this is the left-wing media I'm talking about. So if that's one possibility, uh, and, and that, I think that is true. I think that, uh, the, the, to a certain extent, the elites, including elite blacks, uh, use black problems just as a way of bashing what they view as, as a civilization deemed too white and too male. But there's a third possibility. And again, this goes into the conspiracy type views that I'm really reluctant to, to engage in because I think we should take people at the word. But I will just note that one could have an explanation that by ignoring the class difference of these shutdowns, by ignoring the just toll that this has taken on basic math and, and writing skills of blacks and Hispanics and ensuring that the, the academic skills gap will, will widen, will, will make it even more difficult to, to achieve through anything other than vast racial preferences a proportional representation in, in elite workplaces, the left is guaranteeing that it has a further grievances to hawk upon a supine and guilt-infused white elite population. Yeah. So, so it does, in the long term, increase their, their leverage. Now, again, as I say, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to, to reach that level of explanation because I'm not sure it is what people should be taking at their, what is top at their mind, but it nevertheless does bear mentioning. I want to come back in a moment to some of the issues you raised there about rising homicide rates in the US and the impact of Black Lives Matter and the impact really of the woke hysteria that accompanied uh, uh, the COVID hysteria in 2020. What a fascinating year it was. I'll come back to that in a moment, but just to stick with the COVID stuff for a minute more, um, one of the interesting things you've written about is the commonalities, but some commonalities between the COVID hysteria and the Salem witch trials. And you describe this very well in terms of, uh, you know, both share a, a view, a belief that the threat is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Everyone might be diseased. For example, we've had these posters in the United Kingdom, which say, assume you've got it, you know, act as if you're a diseased person and avoid everyone else. Um, also the idea of looking for scapegoats, you know, people who don't wear their masks like you at the airport, for example, or people who behave in a way that is judged to be dangerous and destructive and possibly spreading germs. So that kind of looking for scapegoats. But then you have this other example, which I think is really pertinent and important, 
which is the shaming of heretics and particularly people like the great Barrington Declaration signatories, people like Sunitra Gupta, for example, Martin Kulldorff and others. Uh, and one of the shocking things for me, not surprising in the climate, but shocking nonetheless, was the way in which over the past 18 months, anyone who questioned um, lockdown, anyone who questioned it as a policy, anyone who suggested there might be a different way to deal with COVID was instantly demonized as a problematic person, a dangerous person. You want to kill our grandmothers. How do you explain that extreme culture of intolerance towards dissent? Do you think it's a hangover from the cancel culture that has been brewing for a long time? Or do you think there was something quite specific about it in relation to this fearful moment? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it absolutely is an extension of this idea that there are dangerous ideas who must be suppressed. Uh, but it is also about, in this case, it really is about the exercise of power. Now, we have to be cautious here because they actually believe it. Mm. And so that changes things. It's like, I am critical of the January 6th riot in the, in the Senate and Congress, halls of Congress, and, and think that the rigging idea is fallacious, mm. that there was widespread, deliberate attempt to corrupt the, the election. Mm -hmm. But if we have to grant that the, the people engaged really do believe that, including Trump, in which case, uh, if you do believe that the system is so corrupt that there has been a stolen election, that is serious and, and requires some kind of response, you know, not violence, but something. So it's a, it's a difficult thing. All the criticism of January 6th has come from my perspective, which is that you guys are wrong and, and it was also wrong to do this. But, but you have to grant them their beliefs, in which case, if they really believe that uh, not wearing a mask outdoors is going to spread infection, which is utterly unscientific. Uh, you know, you do not need to know the particular uh, uh, vectors of COVID to just have an intuitive understanding, I would think, of the notion of viral dose. But if you really do believe that, then you are engaged in sort of necessary policing of behavior. So that's a hard thing mm -hmm. to... To balance, but I, I would say that there is a a rush of of power and sense of purpose and and meaning into one's life in being able to say no to other people to to regulate them, and so that that is part of it, I think. But they they simply have lost all right. I think, to be taken at their word when they are willing to ignore what is patently obvious, above all with regards to outdoor mask wearing, above all with regards to requiring children to wear masks, to requiring the vaccinated to wear masks, shutting down schools. That shows us that it is not the science that is driving any of this. Absolutely. And um, in relation to your idea about the um, the searching for scapegoats uh, and the shaming of heretics, and that often goes hand in hand, um, 
I often think about the figure of someone like Sinitra Gupta, who was a, a prominent signatory of the Great Barrington Declaration and is still the subject of extraordinary abuse here in the UK. She's been demonised in much of the so-called liberal media. And she continues to be to this day because she made some predictions that turned out not to be accurate. She said some things that she now expresses regret for alongside making some very solid, sensible suggestions for how to deal with COVID-19. And what I find extraordinary about that is that in the UK instance, we had one of the most severe lockdowns in the world, uh, alongside one of the highest death tolls, particularly in care homes where COVID-19 ravaged many care homes and killed many elderly people. So we had a, a, a destruction of liberty, a, a failure to protect the most vulnerable from the virus. And yet this one figure who had nothing to do with either of those things and in fact was petitioning for a different way of doing things continues to be the focus of so much hatred and demonization from the supposed elites so in in those kinds of instances which can be really ugly and unpleasant to watch do you think that expresses a sense of power or might it also express a sense among the elites themselves that things are beyond their control, they haven't done a good job, and so they look for the demon that they can beat up in public view in order to make them appease themselves, absolve themselves of the of the mistakes they made and the problems they caused. Yeah, I mean, it is a slow-motion mob. Uh, mob behavior, we forget what human beings unleashed from civilizational norms are capable of doing. And there is that rush of, lynchings of burning people, trampling them, that the power of destruction can be inebriating. Uh, and and the desire, as you say, the, the scapegoating to have somebody that you can hang in reality or an effigy. And it is, I don't know if it's a religious impulse or just a generalized impulse to be able to have some sacrificial scapegoat that we believe if we can if we can offer this offering to the gods we will be able to buy ourselves protection and and so that is an obviously a millennial long yeah. impulse of human beings to to want to have some kind of magical talisman or some magical activity ideally one that involves the infliction of yeah. pain and suffering because there is a huge cruelty, sadistic element of human beings uh, to, to serve up those victims. So yes, it is, it is utterly heart-wrenching to see these people who were in good faith and far more right than wrong uh, now being turned into utter demons and their, their professional lives being completely destroyed. It is unfair and, and completely unjustified. So I want to touch upon the um the other failure of rationality that we've witnessed over the past 18 months in relation to, and, and it's often gone hand in hand with COVID hysteria and, and being informed by it too, which is the explosion of wokeness, for want of a better word, the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement after the George Floyd killing and all the various things that have happened since then, the tearing down of statues, the the uh, the self-flagellation of various cultural institutions across the West, 
the constant apologies that are being made by those who are supposed to be the guardians of Western culture. All of this stuff is taking place at the same time as this disease has gripped our imagination in a pretty scary way. And um, just to dig into this a little bit, I want to talk to you about something you've written about really well over the uh, past few months, which is the issue of classical music and whether classical music can survive the culture war and the uh, the way in which the hyper-racial politics of the new elites is impacting upon classical music. Can you just give us a, a brief outline of, of what you've discovered in this this issue? Well, yes, classical music now is, is itself the target of Black Lives Matter uh, race-mongering. Uh, it's the target of the poison of identity politics. This is a, an art form that, from my perspective, is one of the greatest expressions of of human passion, uh, sublimity, sorrow, eros, longing, uh, suffering, and beauty that is becoming on a daily basis has been ever more pushed to the margins of our culture whose salience in the popular experience grows less and less. And yet you have the classical music press in the United States and I'm sad to say a lot in Britain, the BBC magazine, is is using uh wallowing taking up the power of racial uh virtue to complain about the fact that a tradition that came out of europe which was demographically ineluctably uh caucasian mm. uh claiming that that demographic inevitability means that classical music is white supremacist to its core. And so you have the the New Yorker's main classical music critic, Alex Ross, you know, apologizing for the whiteness of classical music composers and audiences. They are the main classical music critic of the New York Times, uh, Anthony Tomasini, calling for auditions to orchestras which are currently blind. That is, they... They occur behind a screen so that the judges cannot know either the sex or the race or anything else about the professional identity of a musician in passing them on. So they are by definition, it's again, what we have one of these utterly logical incompatibilities that are embraced. Nevertheless, somehow a blind audition is racist. Mm -hmm. It is racist. And so Thomasini and others are calling for the so-called de-blinding of auditions in order to get more blacks into orchestras. Uh, and so we're told that the orchestral field is racist, that it discriminates against black musicians, even though it doesn't know who they are, discriminates against black singers. None of this is true. Mm. You know, there was a history within the field of every, like everything else in the United States of utterly callous, contemptible mistreatment of blacks. That is undeniable. It is heart-wrenching. It is beyond belief how cruel this country could be. But one has to acknowledge the fact that things have turned around 180 degrees. At this point, for the last four to five decades in the classical music field, the reality has not been white privilege. It has been black privilege. There has been efforts since the 1970s on the part of orchestras throughout the country to try to get more blacks into the field to give free tuition, free free tutoring, free instruments, 
the if you're black as a as a conductor or as a soloist that is going to be to your advantage not your disadvantage and yet we have the the spokesman for the field using this phony narrative and what what i find the most astounding is the failure the cowardice of the guardians the people who have understand the sublimity of this tradition they are silent before this attack it is going to take it all down because you're giving young people the excuse not to try and expose their ears to what is by now a hugely alien idiom because they can use the same excuse that they're using against the study of literature against the study of classics against the study of art history which is oh it's dead white male and they walk away uh, and this is this is happening, as you say, Brendan, in every single mm-hmm. institution and individual. All you need to say against an institution or an individual is that it is white, and you have created an almost irrebuttable presumption that it is therefore illegitimate, and that its greatness is exclusively the focus of a white supremacist culture. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. The reason I think the classical music question is so important and what you've written on it is so important is firstly, because as you describe it is, it is one of the highest forms of human achievement is one of the highest forms of human art. It's, in, it, it's universal in its definition, as well as being great in the way that you describe. Um, and therefore to see it under attack in this way is, is upsetting. But also I think the, what you've written about and what you've just described there also points to one of the most problematic dynamics in all of this, which is not necessarily Black Lives Matter campaigners bashing on the doors of elite institutions and demanding they make changes, although, of course, this kind of form of public shaming and public discussion is happening. But it's the willingness, the supine willingness of these kinds of institutions, the people who are charged with guarding the greatest achievements of mankind and transmitting them to future generations, the willingness of those people to go along with this, to say, yes, we are too white. Yes, we are corrupt. Yes, we are supremacist. Yes, we must change things uh, completely in order to conform to these demands. So which, I mean, maybe this is a chicken and egg question, but which side do you think is most problematic? Because I, I sometimes think that some people on the right have a tendency to focus a little too much on the Marxist horrors of Black Lives Matter and too little on the fact that we have professional, highly educated people in charge of the British Museum, the Metropolitan Museum, um, classical music, magazines and other outlets who are just 
very open to being spoken to like this and to being challenged like this. So how do you see the, the dynamic working out between those two things? Yeah, and I have to complain about one of your uh, exports to the United States, Simon Wood, who's British, who's now the head of the League of American Orchestras, which is the sort of trade group for all all orchestras and tries to speak as a common voice to figure out, you know, how to get more audiences in, which is not, I can tell you again, the BLM is, is the absolute last thing you want to do. Um, but he's British and, you know, he's, he was engaged in a, a Zoom conference at the Peabody Institute, which is a, a music conservatory in Baltimore, Maryland here, and was saying, you know, he just, he shrinks from even thinking about when concerts will, will start up again because he will be seeing the whiteness on the stage and the whiteness in the audience. Wow. Uh, you know, he's telling people the most important thing when you walk through that mm. concert hall is not that you will have a sonic experience of an orchestra going through your sternum uh, that is, you cannot match anyplace else, not a rock concert even, mm. because this is music of, of far more greater complexity and in a tradition that, is beyond our understanding how it could be so filled with beauty. He's telling them, now the most important thing to note is the racial demographics mm. of the performers and of the audience. So yes, it is utterly disgusting, the cowardice of people, that they are the last ones standing. After them, there will be nothing. And they are more interested in making sure that they are not subject to a invisible pack of fleas complaining about them on Twitter <laughs> than defending the thing that it is their supreme privilege mm -hmm. to oversee. There is no greater privilege than being a literature professor or a music professor and engaging in what the great British philosopher Michael Oakeshott said was the essence of education, which is passing on an inheritance from one generation to the next. And they are not doing that. They are burning their inheritance. And it is outrageous. I disagree with you that the right fails to focus on the elite enablers and focuses too much on the race activists. I don't think that's the case. I think that the conservative response is actually to say, well, this is all a function of the elites mm -hmm. and to sort of let the actual ground level race activists off the hook. Uh, so I, I don't think that's true. I think, I think we're pretty concentrated on the idea that this is all a function of the elites, which it is not. It is, it is both. But in any case, the result is the end of Western civilization as we know it. Well, I was just going to ask you that question uh, of, of what happens next or, or how far this can go. I mean, maybe this is as far as it can go. Maybe this is terrible enough. But are you, if you have a situation where in actual academies, in, in universities, the, the, the seats of learning, you have the greatest literature being written off as the works of dead white European males. You have the, the um, decolonization campaign, which is really just an attempt to replace great works of literature with, with often less great works of literature, if we're being frank, in terms of what is being proposed. Classical music is being undermined in the way that you're describing. Um, education in the school system is often being hollowed out of its uh, great traditions and replaced by 
the massaging of self-esteem or the promotion of a, a, a cult of fragility and, and a, a defensiveness about the gains of, of uh, human Western civilization. And of course, we have the imposition of critical race theory in some schools now. And lots of American parents have pretty bravely taken a stand against that and demanded that their children stop being inculcated with this racial thinking. So there are so many examples where education, culture and art are being throttled and there genuinely is a crisis of western civilization and what looks like the suicide of the west what do you think can stop this trend or what do you think can be done to push back against this because it seems to be an almost insurmountable problem at the moment well thank you for stating it so honestly and and accurately you are absolutely correct there is no possibility of exaggerating how pervasive this is and how absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, and I, I know what needs to happen. How to make that happen is what I don't know. What needs to happen is, and, and it's very, very dangerous for me to use this word, but I'm going to, which is white or whites. You know, it's okay for the mainstream media, for Joe Biden, for democratic activists, for the New York Times to, on a daily basis, talk about white supremacy to, to, to impugn all whites as being the bearers of of hatred and ugliness and oppression, uh, but if somebody invokes whiteness to say that there is a positive element of a culture, simply in response to that discourse that that runs rampant without any objection. Uh, then one is playing identity politics and being a racist. So I, I use the term with trepidation mm. and knowing that I am, I'm, I'm breaking a taboo, but I'm going to have to say that it's not going to end until whites say, okay, you're saying we are guilty. We are inherently evil for being white. Uh, you're wrong. Mm. There is none of the problems, none of the evils of white civilization are unique to whites. They are the product of human beings. You can look at any uh, country, any tribe in Africa, they are engaged in, have been engaged in as much uh, genocide efforts to wipe out their enemies uh, as, as anybody anywhere has. Uh, the impulse of colonization, of imperialism has only been checked by lack of technological prowess. But I can guarantee you that there's not a single group in human history that would not aspire to uh, enslave others to the extent possible. The ideas that made such activity and such impulses uh, morally uh, offensive and off limits have exclusively come out of Western civilization. The ideas of equality, of tolerance, of fairness, of due process, those are exclusively Western-generated ideas. The ideas that the left is using against the West are Western ideas. Mm. Uh, so none of this is going to change until white people say, stop the bullshit. You know, nobody complains that Nigerian drumming, the drum language, is black. Nobody yeah. complains that Chinese opera, classical opera, is black, or Indian classical music is Indian. I'm talking about East Indian. 
it is assumed that there are certain demographic realities, just as there was a demographic reality in Europe that we did not have uh, a black population in Europe of any numerical significance until the mid to late 20th century. So to say the fact that, and, and, and the other thing that is so preposterous about the classical music attack is to put composers as various as, as Smetna and Sibelius and Josquin and, and Tchaikovsky and Brahms and, and Chopin all under a single rubric when their musical styles were different, their voices were different, what they were trying to express was different. To, to essentialize that as whiteness is simply ridiculous. But, but if we're going to do that, we should say there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, it is our civilization. It is one that has been incredibly porous. I mean, the idea that whites are on top, classical music will be saved by the Chinese if it's saved at all. The superheroes of classical music for the last several decades have been, among others, Asians, whether it's Yo-Yo Ma or Long Long or Yuja Wang. Uh, the idea that anybody's discriminating against non-white composers is ridiculous. So what's got to happen is some of these people, and in my, my recent article, I do talk about two trustees of the Baltimore Museum of Art who did show some courage. The Baltimore Museum of Art, you mentioned, you know, museums, has one of the most left-wing directors who has been uh, busily deaccessioning works, that is, selling off works from their collection of, of white male post-war uh, modernists in order to generate enough money to buy more female and black uh, artists. And two trustees resigned in protest and publicly stated that the the responsibility of both the board of trustees and the museum is to preserve their collection. You do not, you know, make these trades based on purely political grounds. So they stood up, but so far I see nobody in the department. And and you mentioned the study of classics. I mean, this is even more heart wrenching. Classics department in the UK and here are all saying, "Oh, beating their chest, we're a white supremacist a activity." No. They should be standing up for the terrors of Aeschylus, for the hilarity of Aristophanes, for the fact that these are ideas and, and a form of theater of dramatic imagination that was the basis for everything to come, and they are silent before it. It is just beyond belief, and it is despicable. So Heather, one thing that concerns me as an observer of America and an admirer of America is the way in which the uh, a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about, the, the obsession with white supremacy, is not just a function of the decaying academy and the woke mobs and all the rest of it, but actually is has become a concern of the Biden administration itself and now reaches to the highest seat of power in the United States. They've they become quite obsessed with the idea of identity politics in the White House itself. And firstly, that rather disproves the arguments that were made by many liberals, which was that if you wanted to get rid of identity politics, if you wanted to get rid of wokeness, then you should vote for Biden and push Trump out. That was the argument that these people made. I think that's been rather disproven now. 
But also, what are the prospects in your mind for freedom and equality when something as divisive and destructive as identity politics is right inside the White House itself? Well, first of all, I just have to commend you on your absolutely acute observations of the uh, fallacies and and myths of, of our American electoral system. You're absolutely right. I mean, I was just stunned by the characterization of Biden both before the election and, and continues after that he's moderate because he was being very clear. He was, he was absolutely transparent about using the rhetoric about white supremacy, about putting out these fantastical lies about black parents being right to fear that their child will be killed by a cop every time they step outdoors, something that has no basis in any kind of statistical reality. So, and yet, and, and his, his inauguration speech continued the trope of white supremacy and that we've made no progress on racial justice and it, it you know, remains the stain on our soul. And the speech was nevertheless still characterized not just by the mainstream media liberal press, but by conservatives as well as uniting, you know, right. and, and bringing us all together, which again, to me, signals the complete supineness of whites. Uh, again, I use the I use the taboo word. I apologize to anybody who's offended by it, but it is the case that whites have been so beaten down that they can hear the president talk about the their ineradicable stain in their soul, the darkness of whites, and and find that it is a unifying <laughs> trope. They find it unifying because they believe that it is their role at this point to be the passive recipient of constant racial abuse. How worried am I by the, by the utter dominance of identity politics and racial hatred in the Biden White House? I am terrified. Things are bad enough as it is. Trump made not a single dent in the takeover of America's science agencies by the diversity bureaucrats. For decades now, uh, there's been an emphasis in the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health uh, to say that the most important thing about scientific researchers is not their capacity, but it's their gonads and melanin, uh, and, that, and that the only good science research teams are diverse science teams, and that we should you know, make accommodations for people with lower skills or that because they are homeless as if anybody that's come is homeless is going to be fine for a grant to study neuroscience, but that's the conceit. China, meanwhile, remains ruthlessly meritocratic. You take one exam to get into college, they don't make excuses. They don't look at the, at the sex or the race or the ethnicity. You get in because you can do the work. And that is true for their scientific labs as well. They are not spending massive amounts of research uh, money on diversity training to tell, you know, these hapless, brilliant scientists that they are somehow discriminating against allegedly competitively qualified uh, blacks and, and females. Again, we're not going to, I don't, we don't have time to go into the details, but the academic skills gap between blacks and whites and Asians, on the other hand, is so vast that it is absolutely guarantees that any meritocratic system will not have 13% blacks in its uh, elite ranks. It's not possible and be meritocratic at the same time. So I am terrified. Four years can be a long time 
to do even further damage. And, and so again, unless people get the courage to, to say, here's, here's what my conclusion is, Brendan. Mm -hmm. As long as racism remains the only allowable explanation for ongoing socioeconomic disparities, the left wins. As long as it is not allowed to talk about behavioral differences, cultural differences that result in those academic skills gaps, that result in the exponentially higher rates of criminal offending and thus of a higher black population in, in prisons, everything is coming down. The criminal law enforcement is coming down. You have prosecutors saying they're not prosecuting the law. Why? Only because it has a disparate impact. As long as we cannot talk about the academic skills gap to say why there is not 13% black engineers in our science labs at Google, everything is coming down. And so people that have any kind of commitment to the furtherance of human progress have to start talking back and say, no, there are more justified, plausible explanations for, the, for, for disparate impact and lack of racial disparity, and that is behavioral and cultural gaps. Heather, thank you very much. Brendan, a great conversation as always. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.